0: Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning. This is Kathy Bird from Fresh Art International. We're coming to you live from Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. I'm really pleased to share this day with you and a special guest that we have in the studio today. I if you don't know me yet, a podcaster and curator who's been producing a series of recorded conversations about contemporary creativity since 2011. And last fall, I began working with Jolt Radio to bring you this weekly live show. And today, I am going to be talking about contemporary portraiture, in particular, black portraiture, my guest will be Fahamu Peku, an artist and scholar based in Atlanta, as well as curator Chantrell Lewis, based in Philadelphia, and Kia Chanel, who's based in Miami these days. To set the stage for our conversations in the studio, I want to share with you a podcast episode I recorded with Amy Sherald in Chicago last year. She is an artist based in Baltimore who has a show coming up next week in New York City during Armory Week with Monique Maloche Gallery. Let's listen to the conversation I had with her last summer at a very poignant moment in the United States. Today we're in Chicago bringing you the Fresh Art International podcast I'm here with artist Amy Sherald. We're sitting in the midst of six gorgeous paintings in Amy's first solo show at this gallery. And the title of the show is A Wonderful Dream. I'm thrilled, Amy, thank you.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Amy Sherald is an American artist born in Columbus, Georgia and based now in Baltimore. She received her MFA in painting from Maryland Institute College of Art in 2004 and before that, a B.A. in painting from Clark, Atlanta. She was a Spelman College international artist in residence in Panama. She's been a recipient of the Joan Mitchell Foundation Painting and Sculpture Grant and a Pollock Krasner grant. The biggest deal lately is that she was the first female to win the Outwin Bouchever Portrait Competition Grand Prize, for which her work will be added to the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery Collection. That's so awesome. It's pretty cool. (laughs) We're here today in a place between grief and celebration. With the latest shock of killings in America and the emotional tensions that are high at this moment, Amy Sherald is what we need. Her work and the vulnerability it expresses are bringing us together. So we're filled with sadness and anger. At the same time, we're filled with happiness and celebration around this fantastic artist. So you grew up in the South. I did. That's the heartland of what Dawood Bey describes in his essay about this show as the fraught social narrative of race in America. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So talk about a challenging place to grow up.
1: I mean, I was born in 73, so there was still a lot of residual racism in Columbus, Georgia. I feel like it's still a very segregated city in a lot of ways. I moved back to Georgia when I was 33 years old, and this was postgraduate school. So I had a new language, and I had a new way of seeing things, and I had this academic background behind me so that I was really finally able to understand my environment and then be able to put a language to it. So as a 33-year-old woman, I went home and I was interacting in the same spaces that I grew up in as a child, but just with more knowledge and the ability to like see the structure and understand it. And I think that's when I began to have these introspective moments of who I was as an individual, going to Catholic schools and being in, in an environment where there were not a lot of people that looked like me, but then being confused about my identity too, because I was light skinned and my hair was a little light and like people would treat me, sometimes I wasn't black enough, but then some white people would be way more comfortable around me than they should. And say things that it's like, well, you're not black anyway. I'm like, yes, I am. (laughs) So not even being biracial, but having this, I guess like an identity crisis in a way. So like then reaching the ninth grade and um, all of a sudden having black friends and then trying to figure out how to fit in with my black friends for me it was like assuming a language i came home from school and i was like hey ma i started talking like this and my mom was like i'm so sorry but this is not going to happen so like just but again like not having the language i always joke around i say public enemy is like it brought me home being able to find some kind of identity within music and then rap music and then having relationships with people of color who looked, obviously they looked like me, but that kind of brought me along. But I felt like I was really confused for my whole freshman year of high school because of that.
0: You've called it code switching, like a yeah. sociological term.
1: Well, I learned that when I took sociology class. Like, <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> like, yeah,
0: isn't that funny how suddenly we learn what things are called. We've lived them our whole lives and now we know what to call them. Yeah, I mean,
1: but it's something we all do. It's just, you know, it's not special to me. It's something we all do, but I feel like it's something specifically that black people do but then also you know I've done workshops with young Hispanic men and young African-American men where they sit down and talk about the commonalities that they have and what it means to have that because it's a skill and now it's a skill that would save your life you know it's a skill that I feel like a lot of youth don't have now is that ability to be the chameleon and change who you are in that environment so that you can just survive. Mm
0: -hmm. I guess there's a sense of being alone and belonging at the same time that Mm -hmm. you're dealing with. And in that changing that you did between home and school and outside, inside, black and white communities and environments, there's a certain freedom in it, no? I think for
1: me it was because in a way I formed my own identity. And it's not that I think I'm something that I'm not, but in a way you become what you're perceived as, and not necessarily in college, but I guess just after college, because I went to Clark Atlanta University, basically for the reason of like, just kind of having a black experience, what I considered, you know, a black experience, and because my father went to Morehouse, I don't know, like, I think I always felt a little trapped by identity because of the fact that I didn't have black friends, and so I'm not sure this is a conversation that I would like, normally have with strangers, but it's like I have my inner white girl and then I have a black woman. They all live inside of me culturally. I associate with a lot of different people. My friends growing up were from different countries. My best friend is from Yemen, and so I experienced Africa and Panama. I like living at the intersection of all those spaces because it feels freer, and it feels like what a contemporary black experience should be. But that's a hard conversation to have in America with everything that's going on right now. There's no freedom to kind of experience yourself as you would be without the preconstructions of race and gender. Because I'm definitely a black woman, I'm definitely an American, but like without all the prescribed or circumscribed things that happen around me, I wanted to get to know my real true inner self. And so I think I like that freedom because as an artist, I think outside of the box and I want to be able to express myself in any way, that I feel like my spirit moves me, respectfully so, without feeling like I'm abandoning an historical narrative that's deeply in me.
0: Mm -hmm. That leads me to thinking about why you chose portraiture as your way of expressing yourself. And Dawood wrote that the fundamental trope in the making of portraiture is to create a psychological and emotional experience of the depicted subject, and I think that really connects with your idea of how history is represented and how you want to be representing yourself now. But the idea that the viewer has an experience of the portrait in ways that transcend it as an object. Mm-hmm. And I wondered what led you to portraiture?
1: When I would sit down and draw as a kid, I would just draw people. Like it was just There was nothing else to draw. I didn't want to draw cars. I would draw flowers, you know what I mean? So it was just like a, a natural evolution. And the work that I looked at in encyclopedias, because that's what I was looking at, were images of people. For me, like what being an artist meant was like mastering the skill of being able to render a figure. And that was the ultimate goal. That's all, that's all I really knew.
0: The fact that you're painting people and you're painting your people, but you've chosen to depict them with skin that's charcoal. Excluding the idea of color as race was one idea you had to begin. And how has that evolved? How has it evolved? Or is it still ever-present still.
1: I mean, like all all decisions that are made about my work are 100% aesthetic in the beginning. I didn't start with this conversation that I'm having, but in a way, it's a journal of me processing my life and living in this world and the work means different things to me at different times. This week it resonates with me as something that's deeply needed and I pray for the day that these images become so unimportant because maybe the issues at some point disappear but right now we need to see images of ourselves and people need to see images of us that are simply represented outside of the dominant historical narrative and so like as soon as that goes away, which I kind of am assuming is never gonna happen, then the paintings will be boring all of a sudden because they'll just be images of people. But now they mean so much because the black body is
0: politicized and it's making a statement. Amy referred me to a poet that she's inspired by named David White, and he talks about vulnerability as something that's human, something we all have and we're all trying to deny all the time. The only choice, he said, is how we inhabit our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think
1: I see that in this work. He talks about how everything is in conversation. He talks about building your identity on that frontier where you're connected to everything. And for me, I think that's why it resonated with me, because that's a place of freedom that I don't really feel like we live. Sometimes I feel like, and this is one of my favorite words, like I'm being a little bit Panglossian naive, calling for hope and calling for freedom when there's so many oppressive things happening, like am I the crazy person in the room? But I feel like there always should be a reaching out for that and not being afraid to just let go and be yourself and just exist.
0: You began describing this work as creating a fairy tale, creating an environment in the painting for the subject where they could be whoever they wanted to be. So I think it would be interesting for us to look at one of these paintings. Talk us through the boy with the fish.
1: Well, the model's name is Caleb, and he's a young man that lives in Miami. I've known his father since I was three years old. We grew up together. And I had taken my mom on vacation to Miami, and since they lived there, we were spending time together. And so he talked about just you know going fishing all the time. He has this great relationship with his father. He, They're a tight-knit family. They're all musicians. His father is a minister. Seeing them together, it just created a sense of wonderment, really, in me. And um, when I met him, he had on a T-shirt and some sweatpants, but he had this bandana around his head that had stars on it. He's just so much of his own person. I think that's what it was. Like He was just so much of his own person at 15 years old that I just had to paint him. Sometimes it's just that simple. I mean, the image resonates on many different levels, but for me, I fell in love with him and his spirit and what he represented. He's the epitome of everything that I think we aspire to be. The ideas are very simple in my head, so I even hate to talk about like, what they are in the beginning because if I said, hey, I'm gonna paint a guy with a fishing pole and some overalls, you'd be like, why? I'm painting the things that I wanna see.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking at this painting, I'm seeing that you can't tell where this boy is. That yeah. liminal space that you represent him in, as opposed to showing us a place or time in which he's situated. So right. talk about that liminal space that you represent. I mean, when, I, when people ask me about my backgrounds,
1: I think about something that Odd Nerdrum told me when I was studying with him in Norway. He talks about heliocentrism, and he talks about geocentrism. And he's stretching the definition of them, but he says that heliocentric work is work that can exist in any time or space and still be relatable to whatever time that it's existing in. So I want them to be these eternal beings, these archetypes. And although the costuming has moved a little further away from fantasy and more contemporary. Recently I've just been really reconnecting with the work that inspired me and looking at a lot of Bo Bartlett paintings and thinking about American realism and thinking about these images as paintings of American people and wanting to place myself in that genre because these are the artists that I grew up looking at and emulating and my stories shouldn't be shared separately from their stories because I'm a narrative painter, I paint the figure, I paint Americans doing everyday ordinary things.
0: Amy's work makes me pose questions about where I stand on issues of race and vulnerability and why, and what can I do to make this world better. The question is how to make what Amy imagines become real. And how do we reshape a world in a way that makes it feel less toxic and more hopeful? And I'm wondering what you hope that viewers take away from seeing your work? A sense of wholeness. I mean, I appreciate the
1: emails that I get from people who are not black, who really look at the work and see themselves. I want them to leave with a sense of wholeness. But for me, because I live in a city that's full of such disparity, I'm painting these images in hopes that we can see ourselves in a different way. To be able to think freely and to imagine is a privilege in itself.
0: I appreciate you, Amy, and all that you give with your art. Thank you you for doing the podcast here. I'm Kathy Bird. This is Fresh Art International Live with Amy Sherald. Recorded during a week marked with killings that accentuated ongoing racial issues in America... Our conversation verged on joy and sadness. The timeless sense of black identity described in Amy Sherald's figurative paintings reminds us how art can be both transcendent and aspirational. Take a look at Amy Sherald's work and read more about her on freshartinternational.com. Good morning. This is Kathy Bird, and you're on Fresh Art International. You were just listening to a conversation I recorded live with Amy Sherald in Chicago last summer. And Amy has a solo exhibition coming up in New York next week during Armory Week, which is an art fair week. She will be there in person, and you should stop by. It's on Rivington Street near the new museum. Today, we're talking about black portraiture, and our next guest is calling in. Fahamu Peku is an artist and scholar whose work combines observations on hip-hop, fine art, and popular culture. I've been following his work for years, and we actually have a podcast episode with him. He is very interested in black masculinity and how the images of black masculinity have impacted the reading and performance of that subject. I think he's calling in. He's on the air. Fahamu, good morning.
2: Good morning. How are you?
0: I'm great. It's so great to hear your voice.
2: (laughs) Likewise. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.
0: You have a lot going on right now. I thought it might be really interesting to start by talking uh, about your interest in portraiture to begin with and self-portraiture in particular, like how, how that came to be.
2: Sure. Um, well, I think my interest in portraiture really uh, stems and extends from my upbringing in, in artwork. Uh, I began as a cartoonist, um, and uh, a lot of my uh, characters were inspired by sort of aspirational uh, ways of being that I might have had as a teenager, you know, things that I imagined myself being able to do or. Uh, places that I imagine myself being able to go, um, and so the characters that I created were really born out of that. Um, but in terms terms of self-portraiture, that actually was not necessarily the direction that I uh, saw myself moving into. Um, but when I was, re- you know, after graduating from college, I was, you know, working really hard to get myself into, you know, museums. Oh, sorry, into galleries and you know art spaces and Uh, I had been trying for for years to uh, get galleries to look at my work or to, you know, include me in shows and all the packages that I was sending out, you know, I I wasn't getting any response or getting any uh, uh, returns. And I began, you know, by coming up with this marketing scheme as a way to kind of promote my work and to hopefully get my name in front of the, the gallerists and the curators and the Art critics uh, in a way that would make my name recognizable or, or uh, memorable to them. Um, and so I came up with this whole marketing campaign um, where I was, you know, patterning uh, myself after a rapper uh, or a celebrity in the hip hop world. And so, so,
0: that- so is this where you came to be Fahamupeku the shit?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, that's, that's exactly. It. I wasn't sure if like I could say it. on I think on we the should
0: say now. it. I think we should just say <laughs> it.
2: Uh, but yeah, uh, so the Fahamu Pickles the shit really uh, Fahamu Pickles the shit campaign came out of that, and it came out of a desire really to just get my name out there. Uh, you know, the thinking was, you know, maybe somebody would see this campaign and be inspired by it or moved by it. And when my package came across the desk, they'd be like, "Oh, this is that guy. Let me see what this is about." Um, but in creating that campaign i you know created this character um who represented these ideas of celebrity and these ideas that we found in hip-hop culture and this was inspired by my work in the hip-hop industry as a graphic designer and designing collateral and marketing materials for various rappers and rap labels and thinking you know what would happen if somebody marketed a visual artist the same way we do a rapper would it have the same impact You know, will people um, respond to it the same? And so that was really how I, in many ways, stumbled into, you know, uh, self-portraiture. But I I always have to qualify that as well um, when I talk about my work, because even though I use myself as a model um, and as a subject, uh, the work is not about me. It's not self-portraits in that sense. It's really me portraying various characters and various ideas and ideals around black masculinity as a means of unpacking them, you know, as a means of you know, exploring uh, what they mean and how they uh, dictate or uh, navigate the world that we live in.
0: Well, I think that's a really interesting topic today in particular, and I'm thinking about one of the videos that you created where you communicated your concerns or interest in portraying a different kind of Image or different idea of male blackness and it was that all that glitters Uh, Tell me about I want to listen to a few minutes of it. But before we listen Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what you're trying to say in that piece
2: Sure, Um, all that glitters ain't goals uh, Really came out of looking at this question that uh, I, I Attempt to raise in my work, which is how do we define? um black masculinity how do we model uh black masculinity and how does it impact young black men and those who aren't living the experience of being black and male how how does how do the images um that are perpetuated in the media how do they inform and how do they lead to our perceptions and perspectives about black masculinity um and one of the things that was really interesting to me is the model of black masculinity often centers around the space of hip-hop and we have these uh, uh, young men who oftentimes come from places of black who are suddenly inundated with success and recognition and notoriety and money and all all these things that come with it and all the, the trappings that come with it and we play these things out in the media as if you know there are uh uh, morality tales. You know, we we question and we challenge and we critique and we criticize uh, these young men for 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 being boys essentially who have been given access to a whole lot. Um, and all that glitters ain't gold. was really a commentary on that. That you know, just because things look shiny and they look appealing and the gold and the flash and the bling and all that stuff looks appealing on television, there's more behind the scenes. There's a deeper, oftentimes darker stories uh, beneath that, and the the goal of that work was to explore that space and to present and challenge um the ways in which we have come to receive and accept those images
0: okay let's hear what it sounds like we represent the way
3: that the younger people feel
4: and so we saying it and a lot of younger people have these older idols to look up to and these idols look soft you know
1: what i'm saying
3: <laughs>
5: Wrestling on the niggas.
6: Yeah. Nah. when it comes to airtime, they ain't got no spare time. Unless you got a pretty penny or a fair dime. We ain't leaving, me and you don't even do it for the same reasons It's like dancing for the rain season, it's like acid in your brain region. It's a glance at what you ain't seeing Turn to your local station and
5: put love in the music, something we can play again It ain't about a salary, it's all about reality But first, we need a little more clarity it seems all we get is a parody We are gathered here to challenge the disparity I came together with my ATL family To drop gems on what's really happening We get caught up in the swag and the trappings We buy the products without examining Find truth in the lies niggas rapping We get enticed by the bright and the shiny things <laughs> Gotta see the cost is our souls And all that glitters ain't gold. The formulators perform For greater the dawn of the paces scared flow, skid flow For corn acres We born takers And a hundredfold Run your goals And call it one and oh. Back pass, stun and roll The guardians build And stand in the half moan You'll get hit with the 13th staff So Ethiopian jewels
4: Shine the rings, really gleam The threat count the Senegalese fatigue I try to need what I want Even want what I need Align my goals and missions And cherish my seeds This transmission is automatic not built for speed Just luxury and achieve ride. For
5: a system. minus the mickey, finicky Fake fuck shit Slow roast show host I'm
7: so not the fuck Show off, you're no know, boss Slow soft, you're so soft A symptom like a cold cough Sickening to see crippled to seeds Blinding with your material items Deciding and deciding It's your lane that they're riding in Early death at the end of that They're early in defending traps Pitfalls they're rendered Lacking the essential self-hope So I pick up a pencil and help folks So what your motive is Notice this, notice this Declarations
5: to correct the nation, no hesitation. time so
4: the world cold like a shoulder, attitude polar. But my latitude more solar. Can't ignore it like cavities in your molar. The apprentice think you got more pull than the
5: dentist more jewels than Linux when niggas always want to pop tag, try to prove to the next man that he got swag, but was lost though, can't find shit, and the climate reminds him that he's not dead,
3: as it all comes tumbling down, you must buy the crown never made you a king, nigga, it's how you react, when you back against the wall, either you fly or you fall, it ain't all about the surface, one of all, you better learn this, it's urgent, the clock tick, top non-stop, keep it regal, you forgot, it ain't hey, all about that me. rock, I'm drinking rock, glitter,
5: steak,
0: Well, that was Fahamu Peko's All That Glitters, Ain't Goals. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. I did say you're a scholar, Fahamu, but I didn't mention you're at the edge of your PhD. You're going through this study at the Institute of Liberal Arts at Emory University, when we talked, you weren't, like, really fusing your work with the... It was connected, but not so fused with Black Lives Matters. but this whole show seems to be uh, this do-or-die affect, ri- ritual and resistance seems highly connected to, to what's going on in the world right now.
2: Yes, that's correct. The, in fact, the... Uh... The exhibition came about as a result of an invitation from the Halsey Institute of Contemporary Art in Charleston. Uh, I had met the director, uh, Mark Sloan, uh, about a year and a half before. And we had talked about, you know, the possibility of me doing a show at the Halsey and to quote Mark when the time was right. Um, And a few months later, uh, I got a package in the mail from the Halsey Institute one day. And uh, when I opened the envelope, inside was a copy of the Post Courier, which is the local newspaper to Charleston, South Carolina. And on the front page was the story about uh, Walter Scott, the uh, black man who was shot in the back uh, by a police officer, I believe his name was Michael Slager. Uh, and attached to the newspaper was a sticky note that just said, It's time for you. Um, and that was the beginning of that uh, the project do or die in the, at the onset, I you know, took that invitation, um, really seriously. And the implications of the narrative, uh, of Walter Scott's death. And, you know, that having been in a long line of, uh, shootings, police involved shootings of, of unarmed, uh, black men, and really began to think about how through my work, I might be able to, um, to, to not just uh, comment on uh, these tragedies but how I might use my work to elevate us and move us beyond them so that we're not fixated on the trauma that we're not fixated on the tragedy of it but that we can see ourselves as being um, empowered to to be active and to take action um, and to resist uh, that spectacle of death that 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 we've been so acculturated and bombard acculturated to and bombarded with
0: well, it's pretty stunning what I've seen of it so far. The work involves uh, your paintings, drawings, and video.
2: And, yes, and performance as well.
0: And performance. I saw the video, the celebration. You're tying in some uh, Yoruba ritual to your performance projects related to this, exactly. correct?
2: Yes, exactly. So the, um, the exhibition uh, really looks at excuse me, uh, Yoruba spirituality uh, combined uh, with hip hop culture and combined with black aesthetic movements like the Negritude movement, um, considering those three facets as sort of a uh, representation of, of a body, mind, spirit, holistic treatise, um, wherein hip hop represents the, the physical, represents the body, um, Negritude represents the the intellectual um and Yoruba uh, represents the spiritual. Um, and thinking about these things coming together to help us form a, a resistance strategy um, that moves us beyond the spectacle of Black Death. Um, and so the Yoruba ritual aspects of it were, were for me really important because in many ways, I feel that um, African spirituality gives us a language and a means through which to process and understand uh, the world uh that is is that that reconnects us to our uh to our roots and to our core um that is not fragmented that is not uh politicized um in the ways in which you know other forms of uh spiritual practices have been uh, but this is something that gives us an opportunity to think outside of the again the kind of uh politics and in socialization uh that that has Kept us oppressed and marginalized.
0: Well, I know there's one piece in the show that I was watching, and and it's titled Emmett it Still. It's a portrait of a young black man. If we're talking about portraiture,
2: mm-hmm. uh, yes, Emmett Still is a uh, uh, a story that really attempts to put the viewer in the in the shoes of a young black man, um, just going through his day to day life, and you know as evidenced um in, in many of these tragedies you know something as simple as a walk to the store uh could result in death for many black men just simply a, a casual run-in with a police officer could be a life or death situation um and i wanted to to represent that in the film to really make it uh not just something that we think about in theory but to actually activate that space and to put us again in that position where we can see how quickly Something can escalate into a tragedy.
0: Well, let's hear a little excerpt of that um, before we talk about this larger topic of portraiture with Chantrell.
2: Okay.
5: Strange Fruit. Raining down in this garden of Eden. Eating. eating premature, it's the love that we needed. Flesh ripped apart, it's like a struggle just being. A troubled skin just to be in. Oh, God, the struggle we be in. Drawing breath from certain death, this living ain't easy. Between the world and me, we need coats like easy Chill from the winter's wind, it's quite breezy. It's a cold, cold world, and no, we stay freezing. We stay frozen at war like Greeks and Trojans. Temperatures rise, feel the heat like an explosion. Silencing our pain, we cry with no emotion. Eyes swollen with tears, we stay hoping. Back bent from the way we stay coping. Try to breathe through the pain, we stay choking. A better day on the way, we stay hoping. Oh yeah, there's trauma and pain, but we ain't broken.
7: Like, oh my god, we're still preaching to the fire. But who will ever know we got devils in the choir? Nagles, like I'm alive, my niggas. Look, I survived, my niggas. This ain't no job, my niggas. It's time to pay up the pegles, Nagles. My freedom paper signed by Obama. My mama, master, and Hazels, Nagles. Chicken, George led me to Georgia, and to brought me to Kansas. And Rosa led down the roads to sing along in my seance. To hide me from my people was to put it in the bus, so we book it to Booker T. When they do the book at us, don't judge a book by its cover, but the story that it gathers. This all of my native tongue, so we weird content, including my family name. Like America, I'm through with you. It's the true name my mama gave me, Young Guaja.
0: is a gorgeous piece. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was a, um, you know, great uh, project to work on. It's actually my first um, attempt at film. Um, So the short film is about 15 minutes and the soundtrack uh, uh, features guest appearances by um, Killer Mike and um, Ekundario who's a uh, rapper here in Atlanta, but it also features my 16-year-old nephew in that uh, track that she just, just played as well.
0: It's gorgeous. Um, if you are just tuning in to our show today, this is the Fresh Art International show on Jolt Radio in Miami. I'm Kathy Bird, and here in the studio with me today, by phone, is Fahamu Peku. We were just listening to this an excerpt from the soundtrack of a new film project called Emmett Still and uh, with me in the studio is Chantrell Lewis and also Kia Chanel we'll be hearing from shortly and Chantrell is a native of New Orleans based in Philadelphia and she's a curator and researcher that travels internationally researching diasporic aesthetics, spirituality and the survival and nuances of the transnational African diasporan communities, and her traveling curatorial project that we're here to talk about next is the Dandelion Project, that ex- examines global black dandyism through photography and film. And I know that you, Fahamu and Chantrell. Hi, Chantrell. Hey, Kathy. That you two have had many conversations on this topic. I'm certain oh, all yeah. the time.
4: <laughs> what up, Wodey?
0: Wodey,
4: now nah, what's <laughs> happening? What's <laughs>
0: happening?
4: <laughs> As you can see, we're you know we're siblings. <laughs>
0: yes, I, I feel I feel that, and that's why I thought it would be really great to have Fahamu call in when you're in town in Miami today. Uh, Chantrell's show, and we're going to be talking about it more, has started in at Columbia University and has been traveling around and made its way to Miami, but. Uh, let's talk just generally about the two view and about the importance of portraiture in contemporary black art today.
4: Well, it's interesting. My introduction to black portraiture uh, began with my grandfather, who was a self-taught artist. He was a portrait artist who was based and lived in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans. And um, he would, working primarily with pastels, He um, did portraits of, he was commissioned to do portraits of people in and around the community, in and around the city of New Orleans, including myself, including my father, um, including my maternal grandparents. And so I think that was my earliest introduction to like looking at um, how we see ourselves, um, how we see each other as a people and I was surrounded by images of black people in my home. My parents made sure that the images that I saw reflected me, reflected my culture and my heritage. So whether it's black portraiture through children's books that I read um, or the work of uh, people like Annie Lee, different uh, black artists. I remember my father had a a print of a poster of banjo lesson um, Henry Osawa Tanner's Banjo Lesson. And um, and without me really knowing who he was at the time or that I would become a curator later on in life, I was always just struck by the the simplicity yet complexity of black people and ourselves and um, all of our beauty um, and all of the like various manifestations of that. And so black portraiture was always important for me for that reason. Um, and it was later, I guess through my work that I began to realize that it it actually is a a technology that we've had access to um, to counter the narrative of who black people are in this white imagination, right? So beginning with the black native in Africa and then the black, quote unquote, slave, and then, you know, the the black person post, uh, you know, reconstruction and post-emancipation. And so we've been able to use this technology to really create our own narrative, our own reality, our own identity in such a very powerful way, in a way that's not figurative. So it's not a part of the imagination as much of it is a reality of who we are and the range, the wide spectrum of who we are, like the idea that blackness is not a monolith, that our narratives are not monolithic, that they are complex, they, there is variance, um, there's humanity, there's beauty, there's, there's tragedy, but there's resilience. There's so many things and I think that's what Black Portraiture has done for us as a community and as a people uh, internationally.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a really true statement. I know when I used to teach at in Georgia in Atlanta in our conversations that I had very diverse students and we often talked about the lack of reference points in art history and in the home even in education and literature and all that, you know, was a motivating force for more black expression in all the creative fields. And I think portraiture as representing, uh, as I've read many times and experienced myself as a point of resistance in a way. Let's talk about what that means to have the black body in an art form be a point of resistance.
4: I think it's so interesting um, when we really look at the, the body as a site um, of resistance, particularly when there's agency there. And that's one of the reasons why I think Fahamu's work is so powerful, that it is self-portraiture and he's always centering his body uh, within his work because it, it's his black body that goes out into the world. So whether he's in a grocery store with his family or if he's on one of his you know many international excursions, People are contending and interacting with his black body. So they see this young black man. They're not reading Fahamupeku, Doctor Fahamu Peku, right? They're not reading hey. <laughs> internationally renowned artist and scholar and father and husband and friend and brother and son. All of these different things. They're they're reading, you know, all of the images that the imagery that he talked about, all of the narratives. So like, oh, is he a rapper? Is he a hip-hop artist? Is he a thug? Is he a drug dealer? Is he an athlete? All of these other things. And so there's like very limited um, ideas and notions of what exists for black men. And so, the, you know, when you use your body in that way to resist all of these narratives so that you can't put me in this one small box, uh, that is a form of, of resistance, a very powerful one that we have access to. I'll,
2: I'll, I'll add to that as well. I think, you know, in, in the the list that uh, Chantrell laid out um, previously about the function and role and importance of uh, portraiture. I think there's also the, the aspect of, of Black portraiture that has allowed for Black people to subvert the dominant narrative as well um, and to take ownership uh, in that space uh, or in the spaces of narrative around identity, um, you know, where wherein, you know, uh, often my work seeks to I sought to do that as well is to subvert the dominant narrative you know you you brought up all that glitters ain't gold and that's really an, an, an example of that you know there is this notion that you know all black guys you know wear gold jewelry and they have gold teeth and they do this that and the third and um one of the things that I sought to do in that work was to represent that you know but at the same time there is another layer there's another level Um, in the work where those ideas get flipped on their head and you realize that this is not real, you know, that that my perception or your perception of What black men do and what they look like is not necessarily real It's based on someone else's idea of what that is. And now you can take back ownership of it and you know and, And redirect the conversation.
0: Right. And so Kia, how did black portraiture, how did portraiture come into your your practice? You're born in Baltimore, and you're based in Miami now. (laughs) Yes. So when
3: I was younger, my mom would always buy me, like, Polaroid cameras and things like that, and I always took pictures of my family, not knowing that I would grow up to be a photographer. Um, So portraiture for me came easy. I always, always, always documented the people around me. So for me, like with the Dandelion show, I chose to document the people that I know because I want people to see these men in a way that I see them, and not in a way that you want to believe like they are. So that was my goal. Like, I've always been into portraiture.
0: I think it's a good point right now to describe this show <laughs> that has come. It started in uh, New York, and the title is Dandelion, Rearticulating Black Masculine Identity. And it has come to the Low Art Museum at the University of Miami, opens tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's describe this show and talk about what you're communicating with this. So the Dandelion
4: Project is a phenomena. It's this traveling photography exhibition, soon to be a published book with Aperture, that's coming out this spring. Um, that is an examination of the global black dandy um, and the idea that um, black masculinity exists on a spectrum, that blackness exists on a spectrum, uh, culturally, philosophically, socioeconomically, uh, spiritually, um, you know, in so many different ways. And so um, it really is um, a a look at the contemporary, like well-dressed black man, but also an expression of black masculinity that exist outside of the dominant, like, tropes that Fahamo spoke about. And so, like, the idea that, you know, particularly within the um, age of hip-hop, that there are young men who are choosing to opt out of the narrative that's been, like, created and manifested through the prison industrial complex and um, a different way of being, right, in the 21st century. That really isn't a new thing. Um, it's not novel. It's something that's very old. If you look at Like any of our family albums, any of the men in our families, I'm sure uh, Kia had them in her own family in Baltimore, Uh, Fahamu, you know, all of us in the South, like throughout the, the world, we have examples of black dandies in our families. There are our grandfathers and our dads, our great uncles, our great, great grandparents, you know, who got dressed. And dressing, in and of itself, was a form of resistance, particularly when you were contending with lynching and the postcards that were being sent right. out of black men being hung in trees. When you know the 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 minstrel images that existed, and so there were men like W.E.B. Du Bois who um, was very fixated on black portraiture and the black image, and you know the narrative that uh, that existed and how to counter that narrative, and so. Um, Black men have always dressed up. And not not always, I I think it's important to note, in response to white people and to racism, we do it because it makes us feel good. We get pleasure out of it, Mm -hmm. right? Like, looking great Mm -hmm. for ourselves and for our communities. Like, when people were dressing up in Harlem, it wasn't for an audience of white people, you know, during the Harlem Renaissance. It was like they wanted to stunt. You know, they were walking down the street (laughs) with their furs on and their hats and and, and their, you know, snakeskin shoes because... It's a part of us as African people to express ourselves that way. It's a spiritual part of us, like the cloth is sacred to us. And so dressing up then uh, also exists outside of this, like, oh, you know, I'm countering narratives, but like, I just want to look good because I am fly, because I am dope. I am all of these things.
0: Right. So there are over 20 artists and some filmmakers that are involved in the show. And I think it'd be great for you to describe the piece that is like the poster piece almost. It's such a signature photograph. Let's describe what you're picturing there.
3: Awesome. So the photograph that has become the quote unquote poster piece for the show is a picture of my boyfriend. He is the quintessential like idea of dandy when it comes to like what I think of as a dandy. I've been documenting him for seven years now and just to watch. And I remember him being this guy who just worked at a retail establishment and he would put on a suit every day. And it wasn't that type of retail establishment. I'm like, why are you dressing like that every day? And he's like, because why not? Like, <laughs> right. Because why not? And I'm like, feel you. So I began to just document his style, his growth and everything. And now he's become this like amazing writer um, and activist. And he just wears black (laughs) (laughs) t-shirts. So that's his, now that's his form of resistance. Like I'm in this world of where people do wear suits every day, but I'm going to wear jeans and t-shirts every day because just like my suit, it was a form of resistance.
0: Let's describe the photograph itself. Yeah. What would we see? We're we're talking to the ears, the ears of our listeners.
3: Wow. So the photograph to me was him in his everyday form. Like every day when I would wake up, I would see Jason, the person in the image is my boyfriend, Jason. I would see him sitting on the couch with his feet up and a laptop in his lap writing. And so the image to me is like what I'm used to seeing of him. It's a side profile of him sitting with his legs out, hands crossed, just thinking. And like that was him every day.
0: Very cool. Um, I'm thinking that we've, we're talking about what the portraiture looks like, but I want to hear what it sounds like. We have a short excerpt of audio from the Black Dandy portrait film that was made by a filmmaker and photographer based in London, James Mikey and Sarah Shamsavari. It's a gorgeous piece to look at, it is in the show. Mm -hmm. It's fun to listen to the Black Dandies describing themselves.
7: I find it absolutely fascinating purely because of its reformulation of the concept of what it is to be black in an urban environment effectively. Because it, it, what it does is to debunk the stereotypical um, perspective of the, or, or the view that's often um, um, regurgitated time and time again in our society and for that reason I find it a very interesting
6: project. It's quite an important piece of archive I guess, a piece of history that needs to be sort of recorded or documented. And so to be part of that is kind of an honour. I think it's important that we speak with our own voices um, and we're given a platform to to share that. So for me, I think this project really is important. It feels very revolutionary, even though it's actually something which has always been there. Uh, We live in a multicultural society of London, for example, and there's people who take men who take pride in their, their clothing and as well are amalgamating all the different styles that cross um, many, many different territories and heritage as well. It struck a chord with me because it, you know, it's everything that I think is a part of me for sure. This is also bringing in the traditional values of of black masculinity, but also there's a lot of street style and there's a little bit of hip hop in there as well. And I think that mix is, is, is so evocative and so unique. I think it celebrates a part of African culture that isn't really highlighted in the media nowadays. My parents came over in the 1960s and when they were asked to come over to work, there was a real sense of pride.
7: Fashion for me is, you know, I'm African as well. So living in Africa for 11 years, seeing the fashion over there, influences that's come from my father, my uncles
6: see my dad standing in front of a shop with his hat to the side looking really just proud of being where he was and I, I don't know what that is but I could really feel it from you that his clothing presented it, his mannerism presented it and there's something very very powerful in the community when somebody dresses up and dresses with colour.
7: You know Shaft in Africa played a major role, the whole kind of black exploitation Music that came out in the '60s.
6: I can say my influence has been more from like the rude boy scene, going back from like the '50s the '40s, ska, rocksteady.
7: So if you want to bring it a bit more British, you had the mod style. With the, when they used to ride the scooter bikes, they weren't riding the motorbikes. It was the scooters. There was just something a little bit more dandy about it.
0: This is Kathy Byrd and you've been listening to the Fresh Art International Show on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. We've been talking about black portraiture from so many different points of view. I've just, I've loved it. You've heard voices of Amy Sherald, Fahamu Peku, in the studio with me, Chantel Lewis, and Kia Chanel. have been talking about, in particular, a portraiture show that's come to Miami that opens tomorrow night at the Lowe Art Museum at the University of Miami. There is a book project related to this, Dandelion, and that's available uh, for you to explore more about this topic. I just wanna thank you for joining me in the studio today.
4: Thank you, Kathy.
0: It's been a really great experience. I hope you'll all tune in every Wednesday for Contemporary Art Talk.